Well, hey, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Great. The Grand Haven campus. Man, I love this campus. It's so good to worship with you guys this morning. Um, and um, excited to be here. Uh, obviously, we're in a series on the book of Ephesians. So if you haven't already, you can grab your Bible and go ahead and turn over to Ephesians 2. That's where we're going to be picking up today. Um, last week, Pastor Dave, he preached and walked us through Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians 1. His prayer for the church at Ephesus that uh, ultimately Paul was praying that they would experience transformation and growth in faith. And, um, you know, if you can see in your Bible in Ephesians 2 verse 1, the next three words after, you know, Paul's amen are, you were dead. Feels a bit like a weird change of pace, doesn't it? Like he's praying this big, bold, powerful prayer. God, I pray that you would have, have, have this church be uh, transformed and grow in faith and experience the hope and the power and the riches that are found in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You were dead. And um, so this morning, we're talking about, we're talking about death. And um, I know that that's a bit of like a heavy opening. And as we come to this topic, um, you know, maybe it's not as cheery as a message as you were anticipating as you came in this morning. I promise you it will get there. And I know that as we talk about death, uh, I don't want to make too light of it because uh, it's a reality that we need to be confronted by. But also I know that as we come that I know that there are people in the room this morning that you're even in this moment experiencing just grief of the loss of someone who's died that's meaningful in your life. Um, but as we come to this topic, um, just to kind of introduce us as we venture talking about death and ultimately life, um, what comes to mind is this. My, uh, my son Shepard, he's four years old now, and we're in this really just awesome stage of life where, like, I'm his favorite person in the world, and uh, I'm praying every day, let this not be a phase, because um, it's just such a sweet season. And one of the things that we've been doing together recently is um, playing video games. Like, I'm living the dream, playing video games with my son? Come on. And uh, well, the game that we play together most often is uh, on the Nintendo Switch, Super Smash Brothers. And so we're just, uh, you know, he's just learning how to play video games. And every time it's like, he's got to be Sonic. And I have to be, you know, whoever he tells me that I have to be. And the bad guys are usually like Bowser and Donkey Kong because he loves Mario. But here's the thing about that. When we play, my son is terrible at this game. Like, he's so bad. And you're like, dude, why are you being harsh? Your kid's four years old. How's he supposed to play video games? That's impressive that he's playing at all. But he's really bad. And, uh, you know, if you've ever played Super Smash Brothers, like, he's got the whole, like, attack button down. Like, he can go to town. But the whole moving and jumping around, not so much. So what happens every, like, 10 seconds until he runs out of lives? Falls off the, the map. And every single time it happens, as if it's the first time that it's ever happened, with utter shock, he goes, I'm dead? And as we come to this message today and confronted by this, I know it's a bit silly, but the truth is, is that we're going to come to this, and I think some of us are going to be shocked with like, I'm dead? Or I was dead? But in a similar manner, you know, as my son gets better at video games, like uh, uh, full transparency in church, we played this morning. I was like, what better way to prepare for preaching than a round of Super Smash Bros? And, um, and he was better today than he was like five days ago or the last time that we played. And my hope is for you that if you would come and be confronted by the reality of your condition of deadness or previous deadness, that we would be invited into the life and the growth that is available for us today. So ultimately today, as we uh, jump into this time, we're going to be examining two paths, two experiences of life. 
two ways that we can live. One, ultimately, we're going to ask the question, what does it look like to be dead? Second, then we'll examine what does it look like to be alive? And then ultimately driving to how do we go from death to life? How can we experience not the experience of life or death, but rather life? And so we don't do this often here at our church, but just to kind of switch it up and do the nature of the passage, would you just stand with me with your Bible open or your Bible app as we read today's passage? And, you know, we're just doing that, not for anything mystical or spiritual, but I do think there's something powerful about posture. And as we stand, we allow God's word. We're saying you're an authority over us. And we're also saying, God, we are leaning in and we want to receive and hear from your word today. So let me read this over us from Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and as we come to this passage, as we open your word, God, we just invite you to speak. We ask that you would soften our hearts to hear what you have to say. We ask that you would pierce in our heart and allow us just to be made alive even in these moments, whether for the first time or again. God, we invite the Holy Spirit to move and work and ultimately transform us to be more like Jesus. Would you do that in our time today? God, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You go ahead and find a seat. Now as we dig into this passage, so two experiences, two paths. The first, asking the question, what does it look like to be dead? And the first thing we see here in Ephesians 2 is that being dead looks like living in brokenness. Life in brokenness. This is the reality, that we were all born into this world physically alive, but spiritually dead, each and every one of us. As verse 1 says, you were dead And why? It says, in the trespasses and sins. That man is in this state of sin and separation from God in our natural state. This was true of Adam and Eve when they uh, ultimately sinned. And as a result, all of humanity ever since has been born into this state of sin and brokenness and separation from God. And, you know, in this moment in time, if you can hear my voice, you're obviously alive. Like, don't, don't question that. You're alive right now. But what we need to ask ourselves is the question is, are we uh, spiritually alive or dead? Are we living in the state of brokenness? Because we all, by default, start there. And what does it say this brokenness is? Two things. It says, this brokenness is, is sin. And the word sin in the original language is this idea, this picture of like a bow and arrow, right? Shot towards a target and missing the mark that we are born into sin, falling short of God's standard, living in brokenness. It also uses this word trespasses, which is this idea of slipping, stumbling, falling, going in the wrong direction. And I think if we were honest with ourselves, 
that from a young age or maybe even now in this moment that you could recognize in your life this state of brokenness, this natural state that it feels like something inside of us is missing or broken or not enough or falling short. I think we all can uh, realize and acknowledge that we have felt that feeling. You know, one small example that comes to mind. You ever just woken up in the morning and you're in a really bad mood? What do we say? I just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Like, what does that even mean? Do you need to switch with your spouse? Like, do you guys have to switch days so one of you is always having a good day? No. Do you need to sleep on a certain side of the body? I don't know. Uh, consult your doctor about that. But sometimes we just use that phraseology as a silly excuse for the reality that we're just broken sinners. You don't wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Two more hours wasn't going to make you a better person. I mean, maybe it could help, but we're, we're living and we find ourselves in this broken state. We could all recognize it. And this sinful, broken state isn't just apparent at birth in our natural condition, but it's also just apparent through our life, through the walk of the way that we live, that the second thing that it looks like to be dead is this walking in corruption. You know, here Paul describes that in our spiritual deadness, our state of brokenness, that there is a propensity within us towards corruption, towards sin, towards the trespasses, towards the brokenness. And, and here it says that that is due to what Christians have long called this idea of the three enemies of the soul, right here, that we walk in corruption due to the world and the devil and the flesh, that we are ultimately enslaved to these three enemies that lead us to walk in corruption. That's, that's the language here. Don't miss that. It says, walk, the direction of your life. It says, follow, that the, the way in which we walk, the direction of our life is conditioned based upon what we're following. And in our natural, born, dead states, we follow the world and the devil and the flesh. And so really briefly, here's what that means, what it means to be, to be mastered and enslaved and follow these three enemies of the soul. First, we walk in corruption following the world. Now, I don't know if you grew up in church, but I grew up in church. I was actually a pastor's kid, and I felt like when I was a kid, what it meant to, like, you know, walk in the way of the world was, like, if you danced or wore pants with holes in them. That's not what I'm talking about. And so put that idea, you know, we're not, put legalism aside. Put surface-level stuff aside. What we're talking about here is that in the world, this idea of the world, let me break it down for us this way, that in the New Testament, that word world uh, it has one of three meanings when it's used. The first is this. When we see the word world, it could mean the earth, like just the planet itself. The second thing that it can mean is the inhabitants of the earth, you know, the world, the, the group of people. But then there's this third idea that the world would mean a corrupt, sinful system that is opposed to God. And that's really the intention of what we see here, right? Didn't, the, didn't we talk about this so much during our Christian worldview series? that whether you call it secular humanism or the world, that life here on earth, that it feels like there's a t natural temptation to walk in the corruption of the sinful fallen world. And here's really simply and practically what that means, that we allow culture and, and people and the ever-changing states of the, the world system to define good and bad and right and wrong rather than allowing God as the ultimate source of truth to inform how we view those things. So we walk in corruption following the world. Second, following um, the, the devil, Satan. 
here in Ephesians 2, the devil is described as the prince of the power of the air. You know, it's really this idea that, that Satan is, uh, the devil is like this tribal leader of that evil corrupt system, the world. That here on earth, that the devil has some authority. And, you know, unfortunately, I would find it really, you know, interesting and I was going to say fun, but that would be bad, to do like a deep dive on theology of Satan. We just don't have time for that today. So what I would really simply say as we examine this idea of the devil as an enemy of the soul is this, is that often when we think about demonic oppression and satanic forces in this world, what we think of is, you know, pentagrams and witchcraft and heavy metal music. But that's not really more often what it looks like. So much more often what that really means, what it means for uh, us to follow the devil, for us to, him to be an enemy of the soul, is so much more simply our tendency and our temptation to walk and live in sin. That, um, you know, you might sit there and say, I've never experienced demonic oppression. I've never seen demons or like satanic forces uh, and things with people where they have these, you know, experiences and stories that they talk about. And, um, you know, those things happen for sure that can, but just because you haven't experienced that doesn't mean that you haven't experienced satanic forces and demonic oppression. Because simply by living in this world, we are under the influence and authority of the devil. God's word says that, that the devil has a certain level of authority in this world. And we know the end of the story, that God will ultimately come and defeat Satan and rule over all things. And we also know that the devil doesn't have the same power that God does, that the devil doesn't have the power to make us sin. Sometimes we use that excuse, right? Ah, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. He may have deceived you. He may have tempted you, but we made the decision to sin. We walk in corruption as we follow the devil. You know, we are under the influence of Satan, you know, really, really simply an example of what this influence looks like. It's like this. If you work at Harvest for any length of time, it's only a matter of time until you feel the need to be uh, a fan of good coffee, right? Uh, ben Slank, he was at Spring Lake this morning, but he's been on staff like two months. And last week, he's like, hey, I think we need to get together so you can show me how to do this coffee thing so I can fit in. Now, maybe you would call that satanic oppression or demonic forces. I don't know. But... <laughs> But in the same way that we are influenced simply by being in the world, by the influence and authority and temptations of the devil. Um, and so thirdly and ultimately, we walk in corruption following the third and I would argue maybe the primary enemy of the soul, which is the flesh. Verse 3 says it this way. Look there again in verse 3. It says, we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You know, when we talk about walking in corruption due to the flesh and the desires of the body, a lot of times what comes to mind is sexual desires and sexual nature. And certainly that is a piece of, of flesh and body desires, but it's not exclusively that. It's actually much broader. You know, the a pastor, uh, Tim Keller, we quote him often around here, but he simply defined the flesh as this, self-centered human nature. That for us to walk in corruption following the flesh is quite simply us living selfishly, us living based upon our feelings, our wants, our natural desires, what would be best for us. You know, one pastor said it this way, that to walk following in the flesh is ultimately hell starting within us until eventually it leads us there eternally. 
And that really leads us to the third thing that it looks like to be dead, that it means um, living in brokenness, walking in corruption, and third, life is a vapor. You know, verse 3 says that we were by nature children of wrath. And what that means is certainly that there is this a harsh, unfun reality that we need to talk about and confront that in our state of spiritual deadness, as a result of our sin, that there is impending doom of the wrath of God that we will receive as a consequence for our sin. That a life lived in sin, a life lived in the direction towards hell will inevitably bring us uh, there. And maybe you're like, man, I, uh, I braved through the snow to hear this message. I was looking for some encouragement to be uplifted. But we must confront the reality of this in our natural state that, that it's the most just thing in response for our sin for there to be judgment and wrath and consequences. We live in a time where there's such a hunger and a thirst for justice, for equality, for equity, for fairness. And quite honestly, we love the idea of those things when it means something bad for someone else and something good for us. But there is no more perfect uh, a picture of justice than wrath for sin, than judgment for corruption. And that is true of our natural state. You know, it makes me think of the language in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, you know, Alec up here, he's a, uh, I thought I saw him over here. Where'd he go? There he is. Love that man. But he's our high school pastor now. Uh, and a few years ago, I was our high school pastor. And when I was a high school pastor, we did a series on the book of Ecclesiastes, going through all of it in four weeks. A bit ambitious, don't you think? With teenagers, the book of Ecclesiastes in four weeks. I don't know how well it went. But I'm going to one-up myself. In this moment, I'm going to teach through the whole book of Ecclesiastes in one word. And there's a word that is used 38 times in that book, and it is this Hebrew word, havel, which uh, is translated in our Bible often vanity or meaningless. And ultimately, time and time again, it says in this book that life on earth is like a vapor. It's this idea of like it's smoke. It's something that we know is there. We can see it. We want to we grasp it. We want to experience it. But we just can't. We just find ourselves being left empty, the sense of meaninglessness and, and emptiness, you know, brokenness that we were talking about early. And that's, that's the reality uh, for a life that is physically alive but spiritually dead. We will live this life constantly trying to find happiness and fulfillment and purpose and life itself, but we will always end up falling short. And apart from God and life with him, just living in our fleshly, corrupt desires, we will be left empty in this life and in eternity, without hope, facing the consequence of our sin in eternity. You know, we, we see this often, I think what comes to mind is, you think about celebrities in our world, right? The people who you would think, they have it all, they have power and money and influence, but often when we get a peek behind the curtain of their internal life and their experience of life, they're so often miserable and empty and without a hope. And so one example that comes to mind as I think about that is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with a rapper named Juice World, but Juice World, he's actually the number 13th most listened to artist on Spotify at this moment in time. He's super popular, and it's just been in the last few years that he uh, arose to fame. You know, as, as he rose to fame, he's been, called, um, he's been called the voice of a generation, the voice of Gen Z. Many people have said that he's been like a therapist to millions. 
And the interesting thing about all of his songs is the, the main focus of the content of the lyrics, the message, is talking about subjects like anxiety and depression and mental health and hopelessness and things like that. And so that's why so many people have related to it. But within the lyrics of his song, we see just a picture of the, the vapor, the emptiness, the nature of life um, where we find, try to find purpose and pleasure in power, money, and influence. You know, and to the point that Juice World actually had over 30 songs that within them, there was a mention of him wanting or expecting to die soon and young. You know, one of his songs is titled Can't Die, and I'll read an excerpt from it. It's a, it's a censored excerpt. I'll say that if you're nervous. He said, sometimes it feels like I can't die because I never was alive. Cross my heart, hope to survive, that I'm going to be the last rich one alive. They tell me that I'm going to overdose in no time. I told them I'll do it on my time, not your time. Got my heart in a hell hole, it's on fire, but I won't let myself get trapped here, in here this time. You know, there's a recent documentary about um, Juice World, and within it, uh, it's on record that he took over 20 uh, opioid pills a day. And on top of that was uh, drinking a bunch of codeine, you know, cough syrup with soda. And looking at the lyrics and his living, it uh, should come to no surprise to us that at the age of 21 in 2019, Juice World ended up dying of a drug overdose of opioids that his friends say that he, he drank a liter of codeine on the day of his passing. And it's a sad story. And I don't say that story to, you know, bring judgment or shame upon Juice World to say, oh, that's terrible, or even say, like, man, something about rap music or youth culture or the next generation's problem. But I just use that one sad story that is all too common of, of lives to say that this is us. This is you. This is our natural state and condition. And with the reality of one picture of how that plays us out, wake us up to the urgency of this reality. This is not them. This is not they. This is not just the world. This is not just young people in the next generation. This is or was you. That's what Ephesians 2.1 says. You were dead. You were born into brokenness. Ephesians 2.3 says, we all lived walking in corruption like the rest of mankind. This is all of us. And the truth is, today, this is either your past or present experience of life. You know, sometimes I've heard people say, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. You were born. You were dead. You were separated from God. You're an enemy of Him. And for many in the room today, I, I don't say this to be harsh, but I say this with urgency, that we would be confronted with the reality that there are some who are dead presently right now. And as we consider uh, what it would look like to be alive, we're going to turn in a moment. I would just encourage you, you know, I know it's heavy. I know that that's not fun, but we don't want to hear that. But would the reality of our natural condition drive us to, to check ourselves and to consider how we could be made alive? Is this where your life is headed? So let's go to the second path. Let's consider the second human condition that we're, 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 see, we're shown in the rest of Ephesians 2. What does it look like to be alive? Here's the first thing that it looks like to be alive. Living with confidence. A life that is marked by confidence, belonging, purpose, hope, that rather than living in, a, 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 in brokenness in the condition of a fallen sinner, that those who are alive live in a state of confidence. And we see this language spread throughout the rest of today's text. It says, those who are alive are raised up, right? It seems kind of obvious to say, but those who are alive are alive. 
If our natural state is dead, then to be raised means to be raised to life. You know, it's this, uh, the original word is where we get our word today for sink. Kind of like that picture of like, you know, the cloud where our condition is synced up in the resurrection life of Christ. That those who are alive, it says, are seated. So if we've been raised, where have we been? we've been raised too. It says we are raised and seated in the heavenly places. And in this moment, you know, if you have uh, uh, been transformed, if you've been made alive, you would say that's true of your experience. Um, you would say, I'm not physically seated in heaven right now. I'm in this chair in the Grand Haven campus. But that is your legal, metaphoric, figurative position. You are seated in the heavenly places, which often we think about that as like an eternal thing, like we'll be in heaven someday. But that's a present thing. It's like you're seated right now. And so what that means is that our perspective has shifted, that rather than us being beneath the weight of guilt and shame and sin, that those who are alive are now seated above that condition not to look down with judgment on those who still remain, but to look down with a place of authority and power and victory over it. We are seated. That is our seat at the table, you know? It's that idea of like, have you ever walked into a restaurant on a Friday night and it's like a fancy restaurant? It's super busy. There's dozens of people waiting for a table and you walk directly to that host and they ask you that question, do you have a reservation? And to me, it always feels like it's condescending, but maybe that's just because the way that I dress. And I'm like, yes, in fact, my party's already been seated. And so they're like, stunned. But, but then they're like, all right, follow me. Let me take you to the table. And so they lead you past the dozens and dozens of hangry people that are just glaring at you like, who do you know? Why does he get to go? I've been waiting for a long time. And you go to your table and they're like, here's, here's your seat. And that is really just a, a simple, beautiful picture of what it means to be alive that there's a seat at the table. There's a place of belonging, a place of confidence, a place of being invited into being alive. And so being alive looks like living with confidence. The second thing it looks like is this, walking in good works. Verse 10 says that those who are alive are God's workmanship. The Greek word there is a poema, like poem, that the one who's alive is like a, an art piece, a work of art, created for life, for good works. You know, a pastor in New York named John Tyson said it this way, the church at its best is a gallery of lives displaying the grace of God. That those who are alive themselves are the good work. And sometimes we miss out on that. Don't miss out on that. The one who is alive is themselves a good work of grace. But it's not just the person who is a good work, Verse 10 goes on to say that the alive person, the good work, exists for good works, to walk in them. You know, what does it look like to be alive? It's really simply this. If, if, if walking in corruption, walking in the flesh, if the flesh is a, a life that is selfish and serves its own desires and what is best for the self, then what does it look like to live for good works? It is quite simply a life that exists for selflessness, for the good of others. You know, I like the phraseology, life-giving. Have you ever known someone, you're just like, this, that person's so life-giving. Like, it just feels like they're a fountain of encouragement in life. You know, I was trying to think of an example of a person like this, and quite honestly, I, I thought of so many people in my life, people in our church, people in my small group, people in my family, like people that you just get around and you get in a conversation with them and you just walk away like, man, that was so life-giving, it was so uplifting. 
the type of people who it seems like they're always meeting needs. They're always serving in the community. They're, they're serving in the church. They are, they're, their life focus is about others. And um, that's what it looks like to be alive, a life that is marked walking in good works. And the last thing that it means to be alive is this, that life is a gift. Life's a gift. And when we think about being alive, when we think about Christianese language raised to life, often we think about this idea of the gift of eternal life, that the one who's made alive has the promise of an eternity with God in his presence for heaven. And again, that is true. And that's an amazing thing, that that alone, that the end destination of your life being separation from God forever, absence of life or eternal life with God, with infinite pleasures in, with him in a perfect state, that that enough would compel us to say, I, I, I want that. But it's more than that. It's not just eternal life. It's our present experience of life. That the one who's alive views everything in life as a gift. All that I have, all that I'm given, all the experiences. And so as we examine these two conditions, you know, I think it would be easy to say, here's one path. Here is the life experience. Here's the walk towards death. And here's the life experience, the walk towards life. And I think as we paint those two pictures, I would guess that if I asked you in this moment that every single person in the room would say, I want this life experience. I want to have confidence and fulfillment in life. I want to be a good person. I want to help others. I want to be life-giving. I want life itself to be a gift, and I want it forever. I, I, I don't want to walk in corruption. I don't want to be a selfish, broken person. I don't want to have an empty, depressed, hopeless life that ends in eternal death. But there's a danger as we examine those two things, that we would simply just say, I want that, I don't want that. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to not do the things that the dead person does, and I'm going to do the things that the alive person does, and then I'll just be alive. And I just want to tell you that that's, that's never going to work. You know, as I was preparing this talk and thinking about this idea um, I, I got thirsty, and so I went to, we have a drink fridge in our church office, and I went to go tr- grab a drink, and I opened the door, and I was like, ugh, what's that stink? Something smells off. It's kind of like foraging through the back to find the source, and I come across this Pyrex storage container. I'm like, oh, that is growing more pungent as it sits outside all morning, traveling from campus to campus. Last night I thought about maybe I should get a volunteer and bring him up and be like, hey, Matt, you work in the food industry. Can you smell this in a test that's rancid? And they're like, don't do that. Someone's going to like vomit on stage. It's going to be terrible. We get the point. Take my word for it. It smells terrible. But really, church, this is such a good picture. They're like, what if in that moment I was hungry and this was the only thing that was available? And I was like, should I eat this? I don't know. Looks pretty rancid. Looks like it might make me sick. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to try this out. I'm going to take some salt. I'm going to take some pepper. Oh, man, we got some crushed red pepper. I'm going to just, you know, give it some fresh seasoning. Give it some new life. Still smells rancid. You know, why don't I try throwing it in the, in the microwave? Just, just mic it up a little bit. That'll, that'll make it good. Oh, man, now it smells even worse. But church, we do this. 
we do this, that, that this is us in our deadness, in our natural born spiritual condition. And there's a danger and a tendency for us to just say, I recognize now that this is my state, that I'm a bad person, that I'm selfish, that I'm doing bad things, and I don't want to be that. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to, you know, put other things on top of it. If I, if I do good things, then, then maybe I'll be, I'll be alive. If I, if, I just, if I just avoid the smell, you know, I'll cover up the smell. I'll cover up the bad things that I've done. I'll put good things on it. And I'm just going to tell you that it's, it's never going to work. That we try to do that. That we say, man, I'm going I'm to find confidence. I'm going to find something that gives me purpose in life. And we try to find it in our career, in our money, in our home, in our family, in our children, in our spouse, in our looks, in that next Amazon package that's coming tomorrow. Man, I can't wait till that comes. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be confident. No, you won't. No, I won't. And here's the reality today. Church, if you're taking notes, the big idea is this. If you would take away something from the message, uh, that acting alive is not the same as being alive. That each and every one of us in the room is in one of two conditions. You're either dead or alive. In dead things where we all start off can't just simply make themselves alive. They can't just simply act like they're not dead and act alive. There's nothing that we could do to bring us from death to life. So how do we do it? How do we change our condition from dead to alive? How do we get from heaven, from hell to heaven? How do we get from brokenness to confidence and wholeness? How do we get from slavery and bondage to freedom? How do we get from corruption and selfishness to good works? How do we get from darkness to light and despair to hope? How do we get from the consequence being wrath to instead receiving glory? How do we get there? Well, I glossed over some verses, so read with me in verse 4 again as we see this. It says, but God. Those are two great words. I would argue the greatest conjunction in all of history, that you and me, we were dead. That was our state, and God showed up. God intervened. God came into the story. And how did he do it? What did he do? Verse 4 continues. Being rich in mercy. I love that word mercy that ultimately maybe a good way to say it is undeserved forgiveness and compassion. That God intervened and showed up and said, here is undeserved compassion and forgiveness and not just a little bit of it, riches of it. It says, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Hear that. God intervened in our dead state because he loves us, because he loves you. And it says here, he doesn't love some future improved version of you. He loves you and your dead state so much that he wanted to come and show up and bring you out of death into life. How did he do it? It says, made us alive together with Christ. Here's the good news. We were dead and God showed up. God intervened. God came into the story. How do we get from death to life? Here it is quite simply, in Christ alone. In Christ alone, we can get from death to life. That in our dead state, with mercy and love and kindness, it says immeasurable riches of kindness. That word kindness 
has been said this way. It's this idea of putting your money where your mouth is, being compelled to action. And that's what God did, that Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. We've just outlined, we were dead in our trespasses. We couldn't improve our life. We couldn't live the life that we needed to meet God's standard. But Jesus came and lived it in our place. Then he died and bore the wrath that was meant to be ours so that the end result of our life doesn't have to be wrath, doesn't have to be the consequences of our sin, but he paid it all on the cross with his blood that we could be forgiven. Scripture says that he rose again three days later. He rose again. And Ephesians 4 goes on to say that, that, that we have been raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Jesus, that God in his rising again to life, his resurrection over sin and death, that in his doing that, he invites you into the same experience to be made alive. So how do we do it? How do we get there? He did it. He came. He did it all. And what's our response? How do we get from death to life? It says quite simply in verse eight, by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's nothing we could do. There's nothing we could do to get there. But Christ did it, and all that he says that we have to do is to receive it, to believe. Don't you love that? I love the idea that when it says, by faith, that's not your own doing. Even the faith that we are compelled to believe and put our trust in him is his doing. And if you're here right now, if you're stirred and moved by this message and you would say, my present life experience is one of death, that right now, if you're in the sound of my voice, God is inviting you. He's done it all. He lived the life. He died the death. He rose again. And he's opening the eyes of your heart to know him and to believe. And so all you have to do is say, I see it and I believe and I'm going to follow. So in a moment, we're going to take uh, communion. And so maybe on your way in, you forgot to grab the cups. And so I just wanted, the ushers are going to come forward in a moment. If you forgot to grab that cup on your way in, just slip your hand up and they'll make sure to get that in your hand. And I would encourage, you know, if you forgot that, just do that. Get communion. Even if you're unsure, you should take it. Because communion is just for believers. It's just for those who've been made alive. It's just for Christians. But there's going to be an opportunity for everyone to be able to take communion to respond today. So the ushers are making their way around the room. Just slip up your hand if you forgot it and they'll get it to you. Be bold. Don't be uncomfortable about it. Get that in your hands. And yeah, you can go ahead and close your Bible and put that aside. People are already doing that. Go for it. But I would just encourage you, don't check out. Attention back here. We're not done. As we prepare to take communion, I just want to read from Matthew 26. It says, now they were eating. This is Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper, right before he would walk to be, uh, uh, you know, brutalized and injured and crucified in our place. It says that Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In a moment, we're going to take communion. But before we do, I want you to understand why and I want to you to understand uh, how you can take it today in the right manner. That this is a cracker that uh, symbolizes the perfect life of Christ. And so as we eat of it, we remember his perfect life. But we don't just remember to in this moment be like, oh yeah, Jesus did that thing, that's cool, and then leave this place and then live our lives the same. 
No, we remember so that we would receive. We take of the bread and we say, Jesus, you live the perfect life, and by faith in you, you say that I, I, I'm identified in your perfect life. I'm un- unified to you. He took the cup and said, this is my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And as we remember his blood poured out on our behalf, we drink of it and receive it, and we are forgiven, whether the, for the first time or the millionth time, that we once again realign our hearts and wills to be unified in what the blood of Christ says about us. So you can do that today. You can take communion. You can remember and recognize what Christ did, and you can receive it by faith and identify it and live by it. And that's the invitation for you. But there's two types of people in the room right now in this moment. The first person, you are dead. As we examine the two life experiences, you're like, that's me to a T. I check every box. Man, I feel broken and I feel empty and without hope. Man, I've been trying to find purpose and fulfillment in in things in life and I just come up left empty. And I just want to encourage you, you don't need to continue on the literal death march towards eternal death. But instead, would you take a step back and turn and begin to walk down the path of life that Jesus Christ forged for you. And all you need to do is um, receive him by faith. He's done it all. And so you can take communion for the first time today and leave this place living alive for him. And the second person in the room uh, today, you've been made alive. And maybe so far through the sermon, you're like, man, this is a pretty evangelistic message. This one isn't for me. I hope to God that you're not feeling that way. Because even if you've already put your trust in Jesus and you believe in the truth of the gospel, we can all admit and recognize in our life that there are areas of brokenness that still remain. That God's word calls us sinners saved by grace, that we are saved, we've been made alive, but there's still parts of us that are, that are walking in corruption. And so as we come and take communion again, this is what we do. We remember what he did, we recognize it, and we receive it once again. We realign our hearts and wills to that reality. So in a moment we're going to take communion, but I'll just ask you to bow your head as we prepare to take communion. If you'd like to be made alive for the first time, or if you've been made alive a year ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago, you've been a Christian for a long time, that you would pray this prayer too, because it's a great prayer for us to realign ourselves in Christ alone. So church, if if that's you, if you wanna be made alive, or if you've been made alive, would you pray this prayer with me and then we'll take communion. Repeat after me, pray it boldly and loudly in faith. Let's do that. Father God in heaven, I confess that I was dead. I need Jesus to make me alive. I need to be forgiven. I need to be saved. I need confidence. I need hope. I need life. I put my faith in Christ alone. I receive your love and grace. I will live now for your glory. I will walk in the good works you have for me. In this life and for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, church, take the bread. We remember his perfect life, his body broken for us, and we receive that as we take and eat.
In the same way, we take the cup and we remember his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins, and we receive forgiveness as we drink and receive. And now again, church, we remember not just to remember, but to receive and then to respond. So right now, I want to invite you to go ahead and stand. And as a, I, I can almost guarantee every person in the room knows this song. And let us, those who are alive and are in Christ, sing it with worship and passion and surrender as we leave this place living in him alone. Let's go ahead and sing. <laughs>